0: That's noom.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Okay, everyone, welcome to another interview episode of Words for Granted. Today I'm here with Mignon Fogarty. And young. welcome to the show.
2: Ray, thanks so much for having me.
1: Many listeners may very well be familiar with you and your work. Um but for those who aren't, tell us a bit about who you are and uh, what you do.
2: Sure. Well, um I'm better known as Grammar Girl, host of the Grammar Girl podcast. Gosh, it's been more than 17 years now. Um I started podcasting way back when uh, right after Apple started carrying podcasts and I was working as a writer and editor and I noticed my clients were making the same mistakes over and over again. That versus which, who versus whom and and things like that. And I also um, was in Silicon Valley and I have just a longtime love of technology. So I heard about this new thing called podcasting and I just had to try it. And I thought, well, I'll just do these quick, quick and dirty tips that I'm looking up every day for myself, um, for my clients. Yet not only were my clients making mistakes, but as a writer, I was having to look, look things up in the Chicago Manual of Style or the AP Style book every day. And then I would come up with memory tricks to help myself remember them. Like, how do you remember the difference between affect and effect? And so it was very easy to just take these tips I was already looking up and making up stories about and uh, turn it into a podcast.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I actually, uh, I would love to chat about the history and evolution of the podcast industry, but that is for a different show.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually founded the whole Quick and Dirty Tips podcast network after Grammar Girl took off. So that's a whole different thing too. Yeah.
1: So you have an upcoming book, The Grammar Daily. Uh, Just plug that a little bit and tell us a bit about the format and content of that.
2: Right. Well, the Grammar Daily is like a tip-a-day calendar in book form. So, you get the wonderful years' worth of tips, but you don't have to tear them out and throw them away. Now, it's funny because I've had people read it and say, "Well, oh, I I would love a calendar." I'm like, "You are free to tear the pages out as you go if you'd like." <laughs> but I I feel better about doing this work if people can actually keep it. So, every page has a short tip, which is again stuff like how to use a semicolon who are some of the most famous people in language. You know, there's a, an entry on Noah Webster and H.W. Uh, Fowler and people like that. And then to make it especially fun, there are word puzzles and uh, quizzes and a few little cartoons of Squiggly and Aardvark and the pet peeves who are um, in my example sentences in uh, throughout the book and throughout the podcast over the years.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. I literally have it on my coffee table over here. Uh, it's part of my coffee table collection now. So, I think for this conversation, we're we're gonna go a little meta. We'll like you know dive into some specific quick and dirty tips, but let's zoom out for a second. So, you know, the one of the pillars of you know this uh, brand and persona that you have of Grammar Girl is 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 built on uh, effective communication and or and how to be a more effective communicator. And sort of like you were alluding to, a lot of that comes down to uh, correct usage. So I just want to hang on this for a minute. Uh, so where, where does this notion of correctness come from? Like this is not like some, you know, falls out of the sky in like a tome and says here, uh, this, is, this is correct English. So, so, so who, who, are, who are the authorities of this and why do, do they matter?
2: Right. It's so interesting. There's an entry in the book about the French Academy, because France has, you know, a group of people who call themselves the immortals, which always cracks me up, um, who decide, you know, what should happen with the French language. And English is much more free. And I love that about English. But we do have rules. And, you know, there's a, you know, a, a way of writing that is generally agreed upon to be standard English. And I feel like that is Mostly um, determined by the style guides, you know, the AP style books, the Chicago's, the APA's of the world, the people who write college handbooks about writing, you know, that are used to teach students how to write. There's sort of a consensus about what makes standard English. But one thing that was so interesting, so the Grammar Daily is an update to a book I wrote many years ago, I think in 2009, like way a long, long time ago, (laughs) called The Grammar Devotional. And in the interim, you know, there are language things that have changed. That's why I was excited to be able to do an update. Um, You know, it it used to be a, a good example Is graduated college. So when I first wrote the book, people were constantly complaining about when other people would say, you know, oh, Ray graduated college last week. And people would write to me and say, it is graduated from. (laughs) And, you know, I, I think I mentioned in the previous version of the book that language changes and that this was a growing usage. But in the intervening years, graduated college has become much more accepted. And so, you know, I I changed the book to reflect that. I know it's still that some people find it annoying, but the history is really interesting because our grandparents used to say was graduated from. They would say Ray was graduated from college. So, you know, what someone my age thinks is normal, graduated from college to our grandparents was the wrong way of doing it. And so, I, you know, I lay out this timeline and show how it has changed over time and to be able to update the book and be able to show that even better for the the current time was really rewarding to be able to do.
1: Yeah, I I, I love this. This was actually one of my questions, which is, you know, writing the Grammar Daily 10 years ago versus today versus 10 years from now, there are, you know, certain aspects of English which probably will not Change at least in the short term, like I is the first person. Right, how do use a pronoun. semicolon? That's, yeah, yeah that that <laughs> one that one's not going away. Um, but there are a lot of uh, you know, smaller quirks, usually around you know meanings of words or maybe the way a certain verb is used. These things are fluid and flexible. Um, so so this kind of brings me, this brings me to another point. I interviewed Valerie Friedman a few months back about her book, like literally, dude. Which is basically it's it's a defense of bad English, you know. Sort of by bad English, I mean it. Mm-hmm. It celebrates linguistic idiosyncrasies as a form of uh, inventiveness and, and liveliness, and not something quote unquote bad. And and it does a good job of framing what we think of as good English as you know a byproduct of historical causes and conditions, which is what you're you know getting at with with the fact that you know in just ten years you have to revise this book. What I like about your work and, and and the book is that, you know, I don't want to uh, put words in your mouth, but I think um, it, it's fairly ideologically neutral. It just presents the rules of English at a um, at a given time without saying you must follow them. But it says here, here they are. Do 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 what you want. Um, now, despite that, though, I'm wondering if you have a defense of good English or or, or maybe maybe not uh, maybe not good English, but uh, maybe effective English is a softer term.
2: Yes, yes, that's so funny. So, so many things. I love Valerie and her work and her book. Uh, She writes for my podcast um, on occasion, and we actually both were professors at the University of Nevada in Reno, so I know Valerie quite well, and and she's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so funny that you say I'm neutral because I do aim to be neutral, and um, you know, some people give me a hard time because I think the way to grow an audience is often to be ideological to have a strong viewpoint and push that and then that gets a lot of attention and um, just the other day I was telling someone you know uh, we were were talking about the, um, the Oxford comma you know people feel very strongly about the Oxford comma and I said I will die on the hill that the Oxford comma is a style choice and like that is not a very extreme position.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no, not at all.
2: It makes nobody happy. It does, you know, uh, no, it, that makes nobody happy. That position, but that's what I believe, and that that is my hill that I will die on. That there are style choices, and there isn't a right or wrong way to do it. There's a right or wrong way to do it depending on your audience, and depending on the rules you are required to follow for your work or your school. And you are free to write however you want for your personal writing. And it is not, does not have anything to do with your intelligence or your morals or being lazy or not loving the language that people make choices about their language that show who they want to belong with in society. And sometimes you want to belong with the English professors. And sometimes you want to belong with your buddies down at the neighborhood bar, you know, and those two people do not speak the same way. Okay, so now but my defense of prescriptivism on occasion. Right. So I also teach um, LinkedIn learning courses on writing. And that is an audience that, you know, almost universally is looking to improve their writing for work and generally at a corporation you know, probably aren't a lot of, I don't know, gardeners or, you know, people who don't have to write in an office setting. So when you are writing in an office setting for work, you know, there are a set of standard English rules that you generally want to follow to be taken seriously, to be viewed as intelligent, whether that's right or wrong, and to advance in your career. And that's the time when I think standard English is important and people need to invest energy in learning standard english
1: yeah and you know to just to, to be on the side of prescriptivism for this point you know it's it's not like standardizing the language is is, is like some evil thing like you know it, it particularly if that standardization aims to um to have clarity if one of the actual pillars of that standardization is to be super clear I think that that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh yeah, that's 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 definitely a good thing. And you know, there's there's an, there's an irony here for me uh which is arguably all language change that has ever occurred is some form of deviation from a norm or or some form of, you know, bad X language, right? And that, you know, be- before words for granted shifted to an interview-based show it was purely scripted and it was just it was um uh in an etymology show where each episode I would investigate a single word in, in incredible amounts of detail. <laughs> we, we'd do like twenty to thirty, sometimes' even forty minutes on on, on a single word over time. And, you know, there I, I, I always think about this this that when, when you when you talk about how a word's meaning has changed, it, it's easy for it to just seem like very sequential. like okay, in seventeen thirty two it meant this. and then in eighteen fifty the meaning changed to this. But, but really there is this like gray area between meaning a and meaning B that's probably rooted in misusage or misunderstanding or or, or something like that so so it, it, I just want to point out to my own audience that uh I'm I'm aware of this irony that I'm sort of uh advocating for clarity yet at the same time the whole premise of the show that I've been doing for nearly nine years uh is you know under the radar. You know, basically about misusage.
0: <laughs> That's
2: a great way of looking at it. There was something you said earlier too that you, you talked about Valerie's book and about bad English. And I actually have one of my favorite other books is called Bad English. And it's by Eamon Shea. It's also quite an old book. And it talks about all the things that used to be thought of as wrong. And reading that book just gives you a whole new perspective on language change because the things that people got upset about, you know, a hundred or 150 years ago were, now sound ridiculous. Like they thought it was bad to call curtains drapes for some reason. Like that was an outrage. And when you realize that people were getting all upset about drapes a hundred years ago, you think, well, are, we're going to sound just as ridiculous when we get upset about graduated college, for example.
1: <laughs> sure, sure. Do, do you have a sense of why, why why do you think people care so much about these things?
2: I do. Yeah. I mean, I think... A lot of us are taught at a very young age that language should be a certain way because that's the easiest way to teach children. You know, you don't want to tell second graders, you can do it however you want. (laughs) You know, they they need structure and and grade school teachers have a lot of other things to worry about other than a balanced view of English changing over time. They just want the kids to like get. a a regular sentence down on paper, right? (laughs) Or or in standard English. So, you know, I think a lot of people were taught at a very young age that it has to be a certain way. And they carry that with them throughout their lives. The the really interesting thing I've noticed is that the harder people work to learn the language, the more attached they feel to it. So I find that um, people who've learned English as a second language actually tend to be, in some ways, more adamantly prescriptive than native English speakers, you know, they're Absolutely.
1: like, I've, 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 I've seen this, I've seen this in my life too. Yeah.
2: They're like, why are you messing up your language? I worked so hard to learn the rules and now you're just doing it all willy nilly. So, so I, I feel like people, the harder people have worked or the more effort they've put into learning, you know, the more affronted they feel by um, people doing it in, in what they perceive as a lazy, a lazier inaccurate way
1: that's that's fascinating. I don't know if I've ever asked that question on the show but but that is that's the consensus answer is that you know learning to do anything the quote-unquote right way is sort of comes with a sense of pride. Uh, and yeah, that if you if you work toward doing, doing something a certain way, you you don't want to be told that you did it wrong.
2: Yeah, and some people really just like rules more than others and oh, order. Oh, true, true. You know, I mean, I uh, I love boxwoods. I love yards that are you know rigid, and the plants are all in a row. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, you know, I I do like the rules of language. I, I'm a i am I was attracted to that. I was an editor, and I you know I like rules, and um, yeah, I think it's also a slight, probably a a slight personality type.
1: Yes, I, I, I'm. I'm in that same in that same boat as well, where I am sort of attracted to you know some of the drier, more structural aspects of language. Um, but at the same time, I also don't care, like you know, about what other people do. Like I, I, there's there's that there's that divide for me. So now, all of that said, what are uh, some of the most persistent? We can call them errors in this present historical context. <laughs> uh, what, 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 are, what are some of the most common usage errors that you see that are, uh, I mean, we, we can reference the book if you like.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if it's even in the book, but people. my, my personal pet peeve that I see a lot is when people capitalize words that don't need to be capitalized. Uh, you know, so you'll see like our salespeople won an award, and salespeople will be capitalized because they want it to seem important, or you know, like that's the important word in the sentence, and that's just not how we do it in English. That that you know, German maybe they capitalize all nouns, but uh, that's a really common error, especially in business writing. That that I have to confess, I don't get worked up about it, but I do notice when I see it. <laughs>
1: Do you want to, like, go through maybe just, like, a couple in the book? And then we can... Yeah,
2: let me, let me look. Let's see. Further and farther and affect and effect are, are good ones. And then I guess I can talk about semicolons, too.
1: Okay, sure. So further and farther is an interesting one because I actually remember what I was taught in first grade by an art teacher, the difference between further and farther. And I actually don't know if it's right, but oh. I remember it being told. So I was told that farther refers to physical distance where further is sort of more of an abstraction. Is that right? Yes,
2: that is correct. Wow. In American English. Yeah. And um, I tell people to remember because um, farther is for physical distance and it has the word far in it. So if you're asking like, how far is it to the store? That's, you know, miles. And so that's that's like a physical distance that you can remember and wow, it's, that's
1: incredible! That uh, her Mrs. Stone, my first grade art teacher. I remember she wrote it on the board, and it kind of blew my mind. Like, like you know, pre, pre interested in language, linguistics, first grader brain. That's amazing. Props go, to her. Mrs.
2: Stone. Yeah, yeah, and it's such a common error that uh, when I, I was I was on the Oprah Winfrey Show like many, many, many years ago to talk about language, and the producer, like right after the segment, pulled me aside and said, "You have to answer this question." How do you use further and farther? <laughs> you know, I'm like all discombobulated adrenaline running through my body, and I'm I'm confronted like further and farther. How do we do it? <laughs> and then um, yeah, but what's really fascinating too is in British English, there's not so much of a difference. Um, I had a fabulous conversation with Lynn Murphy, who is an American linguist who lives in Britain, and she told me that in general, the British are much less um. Prescriptive about language and word choice and things like that. Like they use further and farther much more interchangeably. She said, what they get worked up more about over there is accents.
1: All right. Now, the next one you had mentioned was effect and affect.
2: Right. Yes. This is the most common question I get is when to use effect and when to use affect. So there are some exceptions, but affect with an A is usually a verb and effect with E. Is usually a noun. And the way I remember that is with the mnemonic raven. I think of a big black raven, like sitting on top of a church. I don't know why, on a German street. I don't know why, but like the raven, focus, focus on the raven. And that's because it has the letters A V E N, which stands for affect, verb, effect, noun. So sometimes then people are like, but how do I know if I'm working with a verb or a noun? So that trick is that usually a noun, you can put the word the in front of. So the church, the raven. There might be a an adjective in between, the black raven. But if you just put it before, the ends with E and effect starts with E. So if you can put the in front of it and the ends with an E, then you pick the word that starts with an E. You think of those two E's butting up against each other, if you ever are trying to figure out if you have a, n- a noun for effect.
1: Love it. A <laughs> um, little
2: convoluted, but it helps me. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. And uh, what, what are the exceptions?
2: Oh, my gosh. Okay, so affect can be a noun in psychology. So people will talk about, um, you know, he has a sad affect. They, they use it because the theory is that you can't actually know how someone is feeling you can only know how they appear to feel and that is their affect so that that's a specialized word in psychology and then there are some unusual some rare uses of effect that are a verb like to if basically the only time you want it is when you're talking about effecting change that's when effect with an e is a verb
1: Right, right. I feel like I also have read affect uh, also in like reference to people's voice, like they have an affected voice, like a, mm. th- that's not, you know, their own.
2: hmm. Yeah.
1: OK, now let's talk about semicolons.
2: Right. I think the, it's funny. Semicolons, they're like, I don't know, a lot. Of, I was going to say it's the most controversial punctuation mark, but I'm not sure that's actually true. They they, they all kind of have their own controversies. But um you know, people do have strong feelings about the semicolon. And I think it's the one I hear most commonly people say, I just don't know how to use it. So generally, I think of a semicolon as a sentence splicer. So you use it to splice together two sentences. Like maybe if you had tape or film and you were editing those, you know, you physically splice them together. When you're doing that with two things that could be complete sentences on their own, You can splice them together with a semicolon. That's the most common use. So you don't have a conjunction like and or something like that. And those two separate elements, which could be sentences on their own, they have to be related in some way to use a semicolon. So you wouldn't want to say, you know, I was gardening this morning and Bob is buying a new car. Like those two things aren't related. So you wouldn't use a semicolon to join them. But if you wanted to say, you know, I was gardening this morning. I found a bunch of bugs on my cauliflower, which I did. Um, Then you could use a semicolon to join those two elements.
1: Uh, Is it was it a. Kurt Vonnegut that has the semicolon <laughs> quote? What is it that?
2: I was just going to say, Kurt Vonnegut, he didn't like the semicolon. It only sh- all, all it's for is showing you went to college or something like that. And I yeah. went and looked up the original quotation. And if you view it in the um, larger context of what he was saying, it seems like he was joking. And he didn't feel so ridiculously strongly against the semicolon. And he does occasionally use a semicolon in his own writings. So I feel like that quote is taken out of context.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I I feel like I'm, I don't overuse the semicolon, but I, I, I'm i a fan. I do find myself, I think, using the semicolon more than I read in other people's casual writings. I think it's pretty useful.
2: Yeah, I, I think I do too. Although I use it less, a lot less than I used to, um, just because uh, one thing I'm actually really excited about right now is I'm working on a new course for LinkedIn about um, the principles of writing with plain language, you know, and you were talking earlier about clarity, and I'm I'm just I've become a huge fan of plain language writing, and and one of the the things that is an element of that is you aim to use shorter sentences uh, because it's just easier for people to read, and so I've actually been using fewer semicolons just because now I'm aware of how much easier it makes it for people to read when you don't use them. So if you, it, you know, if I'm writing like literary writing or something, sure, but if I'm trying to communicate information, then yeah, not so many semicolons.
1: Uh, do you have any feelings about the long dash?
2: I love the long dash, the M dash. The M dash, I, I, yeah. I, I use it quite a bit in my writing. I do like it.
1: I'm going to hit you with a question off the top of my head. Just the other day, I was listing... Questions. I was listing a series of questions and I didn't know quite how to punctuate. Um, And, you know, I I don't actually have the the reference in in, in front of me right now. But yeah, I kind of stumble over lists where the things being listed are like clauses unto themselves or questions. So yeah, how do I do that better?
2: Yeah, there is an entry on that, but on that in the Grammar Daily. And, uh, you know, how do you handle a series of questions? Like, for example, uh, I remember seeing a movie where dogs could talk and the dog was realized they could talk and they said, can I have a cookie? Can I have 10 cookies, 20 cookies, 40 cookies? You know, and each of those things is like another question, but it's not a complete sentence. So how do you write that 40 cookies at the end? And, um, turns out you know it's a style choice, <laughs> but you you put you always put a question mark, and then whether or not you capitalize the first word is a style choice and the the um the advice is generally capitalize the first word if it is a sentence like element if it feels like a sentence, and if it doesn't keep it lowercase, so you might capitalize you know if it says can I have?" A cookie and then it's like how about four cookies like that's you know almost like a sentence so you'd capitalize Mm -hmm. how and then by the time you get to but by the time you get to the end you're like 50 cookies that's not really like a sentence so you would keep it lowercase and then you have to analyze so then you probably want to keep it all lowercase because you definitely don't want to switch back and forth in the the line so you have to use your own judgment Um, And and the key question sort of to ask is, does it feel more like a sentence or more like just a fragment?
1: Yeah. So this is kind of a difficult question to frame. But again, going back to some of the things we were discussing earlier around, you know, we know language changes over time. You know, some people feel really strongly about these things. How do you view your own role in this? Like, you know, not as like a as like a gatekeeper, but like a communicator of these conventions? Like, uh, are you like the messenger and the don't kill the messenger analogy?
2: Yeah, I feel like I have two roles. And one is to help people when they want help writing in a standard English way. And the other role is to make people realize how fun language can be and how it doesn't have to always be just about rules, how it can be about etymology and language change over time and why that happens. You know, like for example, Valerie wrote for me a piece about dude and how dude can be used in so many different ways and how it was changing over time and, and things like that. And and that's just really fun. So, you know, I say in the podcast we talk about writing, history, rules, and other cool stuff. So, you know, we've got writing and rules. Obviously, we have some rules. There's a lot of, I mean, language is about history and culture. Like, you cannot separate it from history and culture.
1: Yeah. Can we just choose maybe, like, two or three just random, just, like, read them straight out of the book, daily daily tips? Oh, sure.
2: Yeah. Let's, like, open it up and see what we find. Um, Okay. How about malapropisms? So, this is, yeah, this would be, like, history and other cool stuff. So... Malapropism comes from a French phrase meaning badly for the purpose. It came into popular use to describe the silly misuse of words after the playwright Richard Sheridan named one of his characters who had a habit of ridiculously mixing up words Mrs. Malaprop. Malapropisms occur when someone substitutes a similar sounding word for another word. For example, George W. Bush was reported to say nuclear power pants instead of nuclear power plants. In 2003, and in the Sheridan play, The Rivals, Mrs. Malaprop said he's the very pineapple of politeness instead of he's the very pinnacle of politeness.
1: Love that. My my mother is a queen of Malapropisms. Let's just say that.
2: <laughs> oh fun.
1: Yeah, and let's let's do one more before okay. we sign off.
2: Um, here's another one. Um, the two different spellings of discreet. So discreet, uh, S- oh, we have to spell them all. Discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, means tactful or cautious, and discrete, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, means separate, distinct, or unconnected. A quick news search will demonstrate how shockingly often these two words are confused. Don't be one of the writers or editors who make this error. The quick and dirty tip is to remember that discrete, S-C-R-E-T-E ends with the spelling like the Greek island Crete, which is also separate, distinct, and unconnected.
1: That's actually one of the last entries that I read in the book, and I did not know that. I think, I i mean, obviously I knew that, you know, there's two senses of the word, discrete, but I think I might have just spelled both of them with the E-T-E, with the Crete ending.
2: Yeah, I use that tip myself all the time whenever I have to write those words.
1: Okay, before we leave, uh, just you know, do do one last plug for anything you want my audience to know.
2: Oh gosh, well you know I do think that uh, my courses on LinkedIn Learning have been just so well received, and people tell me all the time that they help them write better, you know, for work. So if that's something you need, search for my name, Mignon Fogarty, at LinkedIn Learning. Um, you know, a lot, what I one of the things I love about it is that you, there's a lot of ways to get them free. So a lot of libraries have um, free access to them, university and um, county libraries. And a lot of big corporations pay for LinkedIn learning accounts for their whole companies. So and there's like free trials and that vet, U.S. veterans get like a year free. There are just tons of ways to get it free. So I feel like that's been really helpful to people. And then and then, of course, the podcast, which is my mainstay, Grammar Girl.
1: Well, Mignon, thanks so much.
2: Ray, thanks so much for having me.